1 Corinthians chapter 7, and this morning we're going to be picking up at verse 10. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and the chance to study it and, and to learn the things that you have for us. And we just pray that uh, as it goes through your word, it'll be a blessing to us to hear and, and to um, have your spirit work in our hearts to, to understand the, your purposes and your principles. We just pray you bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> okay, so getting context, let's go ahead and read, starting at verse 1 all the way through 16, since we missed it last week. Get our context back. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single and lying. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents, to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, so last time we, we met and looked at this, we were looking at verses 8 and 9. We spent a lot of time explaining why the word unmarried likely refers to widowers. <coughs> Just because of the way the words used and the uh, gender of the word and being in the same context as widows, widows and widowers. Um, the whole uh, section here on marriage... Uh, the underlying thing that Paul is teaching is, you know, we live in a world full of immorality. And God's given us this relationship. You know, one man, one woman, and that's where we can have safe and holy physical relationships. He says, this is, this is why one of the reasons God gave us marriage. And, and so Paul is telling them, you know, maintain that relationship. Don't go out and get involved in some kind of immoral relationship. And so he, we saw last week the, the widowers and the unmarried, the, or the widows. He tells them, well, if, if you're single, he says it's good to remain single. 
there are some benefits to that. You can go out and serve the Lord without having to worry about your spouse. On the other hand, he says, if you still have issues with your physical needs, your sexual drive, he says it's better to get married than to get involved in some kind of fornication. So get married if that's the case. So it's not a hard and fast rule. Um, he says it depends on your situ situation. And so we started uh, last time to get, uh, to get into verse 10 and 11. <coughs> and here he's starting to talk about divorce. We'll have a section here uh, through all the way through 16 where he's talking about divorce. Um, okay, so starting with verses 10 and 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her <coughs> husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. So last time we introduced uh, the concept of divorce, we looked at a couple passages from Matthew where Jesus taught about it. And I want to go back to one of them. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> Matthew chapter 5. So I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. Okay, so here um, Jesus is ex explaining, you know, under the law what what's allowable for divorce, and he was very conservative, only adultery. Um, and he said, you know, and, and Moses allowed that because of your hardness of heart. Uh, that's not the way God created us in the beginning to to, to separate with divorce, but under the law it was allowed. Um, and he talks about a certificate of divorce. That actually gives the divorced individual the, the right under the law to remarry. So if, if you've been, uh, in that case, uh, um, I guess I'm assuming it's the non-guilty partner has the right to remarry under that case. <coughs> so when we go back to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verses 10 and 11. Does it mention adultery here? Why would, why would someone want to divorce? There's no mention of adultery. So there's, it doesn't fall under the teaching that Jesus gave. And that's why he said, um, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. So here's specific instructions. Jesus addressed this. He addressed divorce only in the case of adultery. So this is the Lord's uh, instructions. And he said, the wife should not leave her husband. So um, it seems that, you know, within the uh, Corinthian church are those who say, well, you know, I'm saved. I want to go save the, you know, I want to go out and serve the Lord doing this or that. My husband really doesn't want to go with me. Can I leave him and go for the service? Can I divorce my husband, violating the Lord's command so that I can go out and serve the Lord? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> you, know, you don't serve God by disobeying him. 
Um, or vice versa, the husband wants to go off into the mission field and the wife doesn't, you know. That's not grounds for divorce, is kind of what Paul is saying here. Um, now, he does say, okay, suppose she does leave her husband. He starts out by addressing the wife. What are your options then? Um, okay, you can't remarry. Or be reconciled to your husband. Uh, you know, the, the word reconcile means that, yeah, there's some differences there. <laughs> you need to work things out. Uh, you need to figure out what the disagreement is. <coughs> and the idea of um, remarriage um, under the law, you know, if a woman was married to Adam, divorced him, and married Bob, divorced him, she cannot go back to Adam. That's absolutely forbidden. You know, there's no going back to a former husband, um, even though she may have had uh, divorce papers which allows her to remarry. But that's not um, to that point here. So, you know, she's not to, uh, you know, leave her husband in order to go off and in some way be more spiritual or serve the Lord or something, which seems to be the, the issue here in the context. Um, and then at the end of verse 11, uh, Paul tells the husband the same thing. Do not send your wife away. Same rules for both spouses. It's not like in some cultures where the husband can get rid of the wife, but she has no rights or anything to leave her husband. Here was, you know, Paul's giving them equal rights basically, as we've had all the way through this passage. Now, he doesn't go on and um, say in that case, you know, she can't, he can't remarry or be reconciled, but it's kind of understood. Same, same rules apply to the husband as to the wife here. And the one thing I noticed, and you know, I don't know if this is how their culture worked, but it says that the wife should not leave her husband. Okay, so in this case, the, the husband stays, the wife leaves. And then it says the husband should not send his wife away. In this case, the husband stays, the wife leaves. So it doesn't, you know, irregardless of who initiates the divorce, it's the wife who leaves, the husband stays. And I don't know if that was because the husband had more of an ownership over the household and the home or what. Um, so it's kind of speculation on my part just from those verbs, but that's possible. I didn't see anything in the commentaries that would support that, so uh, that's speculation on my part. So here you've got a marriage between two believers, and Paul says, keep it together. It's, and that's consistent with what we had back in verses 3 through 5. This marriage is for your benefit. It's your protection. Keep it together. Um, and the Lord says, don't divorce unless there is adultery. So now Paul's going to get into the, the state where you've got a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever in 12 and 13. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. 
So Paul is addressing the rest. Everybody else. Well, I started wondering, well, what does he mean by the rest? It's like, okay, I've addressed one group of people, and now everybody else. Here's rule, you know. And so what, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a contrast here between a couple ideas of what Paul means by the rest. Um, one is, you know, again, we're, he's, he's talking about which is better, celibacy or marriage. He's talking to believers. It depends on your situation. Uh, marriage is uh, a holy covenant. You're not to break up a marriage, but on the other hand, there is some benefit to being single in, in serving the Lord. So you have to look at the situation. Um, you know, he stated these principles. Um, he's applied to those who were previously married, the widows and widowers, uh, but now they're single. Uh, he applies those to uh, the Lord's teaching to those believers, married to believers, who are considering divorce so they could go off and, and serve the Lord. And basically say, don't do it. Now he needs to address those where there's an unbeliever involved. So that apparently is what he means by the rest. You're not all believers. You've got an unbeliever involved, so that's the rest. So that's one way of looking at the rest. The other one is when Jesus specifically taught about marriage and divorce, did he say anything about believers married to unbelievers? Not to be unequally yoked. Well, that wasn't Jesus that oh, said that. That's Paul. That passage that we looked at. Right. It really didn't address it. It just yeah. said the only reason for divorce is adultery and right. the man should give his wife a certificate of divorce. Yeah. So Jesus addressed marriage between two Jews who were basically the same nationality, the same religion. Um, you know, going way back to Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, that we had the uh, Jews marrying uh, surrounding nations and, and that was absolutely forbidden under the law. So it's kind of like assumed that that's already covered um, and won't happen here. And so now he's talking to those who are in a situation that Jesus did not specifically teach about. And so that's why he says in verse 12, I say not the Lord. It's not that he's going out on his own, but it's because the Lord did not specifically address this issue. So Paul is using his apostolic authority as one instructed and designated by God to address issues in the church. <laughs> and since we have it in our inspired word of God it's, it's bona fide, it's God's word for us just because Paul says it's not the Lord that's teaching this doesn't mean that we don't follow it as though it's God's word um, so here's something that was not specifically addressed and the people need more information I started thinking about, uh, we won't go back and read it, but in Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 27, we have the daughters of Zelophehad. And if you remember that story, this is a man that had five daughters, no sons. All the rules that had been given under the Mosaic law had to do with inheritance of property going to the sons. So here you've got a case that the law did not cover. 
And so Moses goes to the Lord and says, well, what are we going to do about this? And, and God says, well, divide it amongst the daughters. So they needed additional information because it had not been covered previously under the law. Well, that issue comes up again a few chapters later where the leaders of the tribe now say, well, if these girls go out and marry someone from another tribe, eventually this land leaves our tribe and goes to their tribe. And we can't have that either. So then we get additional input. The girls can only marry within their tribe. You've got to marry their cousins. <laughs> and that solved the issue. The girls got their inheritance. They married, you know, the restriction was you marry within your tribe, so the land stayed within the tribe. So uh, <coughs> Paul here is giving additional instruction uh, because it's something that had not been previously specifically covered. But it is God's inspired word. It has the authority of God's word now for us. So verse 12, he speaks to a brother. So that's a, that's a believer. When Paul talks about brothers and sisters, he's talking about believers. I believe in when John writes and he says brother, he's using that word like neighbor. You know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And John says, love your brother as yourself. Now, it's not specific to believers. But when Paul uses these terms, he seems to be specifically referring to believers. So they use the word a little bit different. So, um, verse 12, we've got a male, a man who's a believer with an unbelieving wife. Next, verse 13, you have a wife with an unbelieving husband. Now, it's assumed this is a result of in a young church, one of the couple accepted Christ and became a believer, and the other did not. It's not that the believer married an unbeliever, but it's they were already married, and one became a believer, the other one did not. So in both these cases, the believers commanded not to send the unbeliever away if they consent to remain in the marriage. Um, Marriage remains a sacred vow, even in this case. Now, when we were looking at, in chapter 6, Paul was dealing with men who were uh, going to temple prostitutes. And remember, you had a, a man who was united in, in spirit to Christ. His body was a temple of the Holy Spirit, but he was joining his body to a pagan prostitute, and that defiled the body. So, you know, they may be thinking here, okay, I'm a believer. I'm married to an unbeliever. Am I defiling my body by, by this marriage? And the difference here is this is a marriage relationship. The other one, other one was not. So looking at the marriage relationship, it, it's what makes the difference. And so Paul kind of begins to address that in, in verse 14. It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So, the fact that you've got an unbelieving spouse in the family, does that defile the believing spouse? Does that defile the children? <coughs> and Paul says, no, it doesn't. 
On the other hand, having a believer in the family does sanctify both the unbelieving spouse and the children. So kind of what does that mean? In first form, you know, again, Paul addresses the, the man and the woman the same in this relationship. Um, so when you look at the term sanctified, this does not refer to salvation. The wife does, the fact that the wife is saved does not mean that her husband's going to heaven. You don't go to heaven based on anybody else. It's based on yourself and your relationship to Christ. But believers in this world are set apart by God. That's the basic meaning of sanctification. You're set apart. And God sets us apart for blessing. He sets us apart for his protection. And so in this family, the the husband or the other spouse and the children are blessed because the believer in the family is being blessed by God. So the whole family, in a sense, is set apart for blessing. because of this relationship that the believer has with God. It's not that they're saved or made holy, in a sense, uh, and acceptable to God, because they, they have to be saved. <coughs> and I want to look at a couple Old Testament examples. Let's go back to Genesis 18. Let's see how this might have worked in the case of Sodom. Genesis 18. Someone like to read verse 32. Okay, so here Abraham is dickering with God about trying to save Sodom. Probably he wasn't that worried about Sodom as he was about his nephew Lot, who lived in Sodom. And God says, if there's ten believers there, I will preserve the city. So the city's not holy, they're filthy. But if there's ten believers there, I will set the city apart from destruction. From destruction, not for destruction. And they will be sanctified, they will be blessed because there's ten believers there in that city. As we know the story, there weren't. <laughs> I'm not sure how many believers there were. There was at least a lot. Let's turn over to chapter 19. Someone like to read verses 12 through 16. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, 
Okay, so that's good enough. So here we see, uh, again, Lot is the believer. And the Lord says, who else do you have here? Who can, who can I save along with you? Who can I set apart from destruction along with you? And nobody wanted to go. They rejected this offer. Um, and so finally they said, okay, get your wife, your daughters, your two daughters, and get out of here. So they were, and so through Lot, they were delivered from destruction. The spouse who turned around, looked back, and <laughs> died anyways, um, and the daughters. And the daughters, I have a feeling, were not believers because of, you know, once, once they were, got out of the problem, they committed incest with Lot. Um, but... You know, here's, here they are being uh, preserved from this judgment because of Lot. So he, this is an example, I think, of one believer sanctifying the family, preserving them from, from judgment. Now the other issue here is uh, in a family of clean versus unclean. <coughs> You know, can the unbeliever defile the family or does the believer preserve the family? And I, let's turn to Haggai. We did look at this before. Haggai chapter 2. I always have trouble finding Haggai. It's back between the Z's, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Now, this is under the law. Haggai chapter 2, someone like to read verses 12 and 13. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Okay, okay that's far enough. So here's the example. Do you have, you have something that's holy. If you touch something with it, does that other thing become holy? No. On the other hand, if you have someone who's defiled by touching a dead body, whatever they touch becomes defiled. It's kind of like disease and health. You can't, you know, we, we transmit disease to everybody around us, you know. That's why we stayed home last week, because we had COVID, <laughs> because of that. Um, but you can't, I'm healthy, so I'm going to touch you and make you healthy. That didn't work that way. And that's the way it worked under the law. But let's go to Matthew chapter 8. So things changed when Christ came. Matthew chapter 8, someone liked to read verses 2 and 3. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Okay. So this is just the opposite of what the law says. The law says if, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. 
Jesus said, no, I am going to touch you and you will be cleansed. So under grace, there's a difference there. Let's turn to the next chapter, chapter 9. Someone would like to read verses 24 and 25 for us. <coughs> and he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing again. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Okay. This news spread throughout all that land. Yeah, so... You know, in Haggai, the person who was defiled was defiled from what? Touching a dead body. <clears throat> Jesus touched this dead girl. Was he defiled? No. She was restored to life. So when Christ came, things changed. And so you, you can see blessing being transmitted uh, in that way. <clears throat> okay, so back to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, looking at the end of verse 14, not just the spouse, but he says that uh, otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Um, and I was thinking there may have been some resistance on the part of a congregation. Say a, a woman or a man would come in with their children and everyone knew their husband or wife was an unbeliever, would they be willing to accept the children? You know, that's, I'm, I'm speculating again. Mm -hmm. Just a question on my part. Um, and so if this was an issue, Paul's refuting it. He says the children are set apart by the believing parent. Just the same as if um, both parents were believing. You accept them as, uh, not necessarily as believers because they're too young to be believers or not. Let's look at Acts chapter 16. We'll look at an example of this. <coughs> Acts chapter six, <coughs> excuse me, 16. Would someone like to read verses 1 and 2 for us? Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. The disciple who there was named Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Okay, Timothy. Mother was Jewish, father was a Greek, which you kind of understand. I mean, he was probably not saved. He was um, he maintained his, his pagan ways, but his mother was was Jewish. She was a believer. Um, and, and it's her godly influence that affected Timothy. So Paul was willing to accept Timothy, even though his father was a Greek. They go on, um, and uh, he has Timothy circumcised to make him more acceptable to the... Oh, Paul always went to the Jews first. And Timothy had not been circumcised because of his father. So we had Timothy circumcised to take care of that issue that, that might have um, made some of the, the, the Jewish people he went to reject, uh, reject him. But Timothy was a believer. Let's turn to 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, someone would like to read verse 5 for us. 2 Timothy 1, 5. 
reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Okay. So here he has a believing mother, and because of that, through the faith that she transmitted and through the grandmother's faith, results in him being a believer as well. And so that's an example of, of how a, a believer can set apart or influence a whole family <coughs> in a relationship where, where one's a believer and one's not. Um, and I think of Marie's brother, who's uh, a believer. His, his wife is a Jehovah's Witness. And what about their daughters? Are they both believers? Um, no, uh, the one daughter clings more to Christianity than she does. I don't know that she's saved. Okay. The other one is just angry at her mom. Just yeah, <laughs> it's still a messed up family. But the grand, grandsons, yes, the grandsons, so you have two grandsons who are fantastic believers. And it's all because of his influence on that family. Because his wife's whole family was, they were all Jehovah's Witnesses. So through him, he's, he has set apart his family for blessing. Now, the presence of a believer in the family does not guarantee the salvation of the offspring. You know, and Paul hits that in verse 16. <coughs> but um, we also know families where both parents are believers and children are not. So, you, you know, you can't believe for your children. You're an influence on them. And they are blessed because of, of God's blessing on you and your family. So, um, I don't know if we want to go to verse 15, I think. Why don't we stop there? It's a little different situation, and we're going to have to. <laughs> we're going to run out of time before I get through it, so we'll stop it before fifteen. <coughs> well, Joe's not here, so Debbie, you want to pray for us? <laughs> you can take over. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for. Um, Jesus' instructions for Paul, who we know um, was specially designated as an apostle for his instructions. We thank you for Daryl's diligence in studying and um, helping to sort this out. Um, we just thank you that we have your word to guide us. We thank you also that um, there's demonstration of your grace, even as we've talked about, or Daryl has pointed out, how things changed when Christ came. That you would continue to help us um, ponder these truths, to look um, through to them um, as guidance for our lives. Help us to be ones that are influencers for you. And uh, we also ask your blessing on the hour to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've been um, reading several 